This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This week, we are going to discuss a perennial topic of congressional politics and a perennial debate within our democracy, one that's becoming perhaps more important than it's been in a long time. The question of whether the U.S. Senate should continue to have a rule for a filibuster, which allows a minority, a small minority in the Senate, to prevent legislation and other matters from moving forward. Uh, This is, as I said, an age-old question. It's central to American legislation and American politics. And we're very fortunate to have with us one of the leading scholars of Congress in general, and this topic, among many others, uh, my friend and colleague, Sean Thoreau. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Jeremy. Sean is a professor in the Department of Government here at the University of Texas at Austin. As I said, he's an internationally recognized, widely published author and speaker on uh, the various pathologies of the U.S. Congress. Sean has written five outstanding books, many of which have won awards. He began his illustrious career with the book, The Power of the People appropriately titled uh, for a scholar of Congress. I guess that's the aspiration of Congress more than the reality. (laughs) Uh, He then published a a really prescient book in 2008, Party Polarization in Congress. Then another book that I really enjoyed reading, I read this book on a prize committee uh, years ago, The Gingrich Senators, really uh, one of the best books at explaining how Newt Gingrich and his generation transformed uh, the U.S. Congress. And then more recently, The Great Broadening. And uh, just this last year, a really important book for educating all of us about these topics, Congress, the First Branch. Sean also writes widely in every major newspaper. He appears on all kinds of news shows. Uh, we could we could call you, Sean, Mr. Congress. How does that sound? I'll take that moniker, although, although Congress isn't so popular these days, Jeremy. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think it's safe to say, Sean, you are more popular than Congress. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Before our conversation with Sean, as always, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Siri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? With a single speech. Well, let's hear it. It is a kind of arrogance that we think ourselves so sacrosanct that we build for our posterity a temple of democracy and hand any old fool a key. It is a kind of arrogance that we think ourselves so chosen that we steal votes from cities for a slew of empty prairies to send there any old Tom Harry, Dick, and Larry's. It is a kind of arrogance that we think ourselves so holy that they can stand among the rubble that they burned right to the ground and with their fist a hollowed oaken desk of storied ages pound and cry out for the freedom of ten hours for their mouths to sound. It is a kind of arrogance that we think our stars so well foretold to turn away the crying of a child for the banknotes pristinely rolled, to rest our eyes on empty promises where they rest in rot and mold, and wake up in a stupor still in the middle of our speech, and sing to the great portraits about the horror to impeach. But the old poets of the tattered haunts, they know it all too well, and can recall of every second to you in a cafe, with a screech as their voices swell. Old men cannot solve our problems with a single speech. 
Zachary, that's lovely. What What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the irony that we consider ourselves such a, uh, a an important and an original democracy, and 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 we think ourselves so great that we don't actually need to maintain our democracy and and perform the basic maintenance of, of democratic institutions. And even while we have these very archaic uh, institutions like the filibuster embedded in our very houses of government. Well, that's just a fantastic uh, opening for for our conversation. Sean, is is the filibuster an archaic element of Congress? So first, Jeremy, how dare you make us go after Zachary? (laughs) (laughs) If I ever sign up to do this show again, I'm going to mandate that he go last so I don't have to follow that act. You're you're not the first uh, first, uh, guest to say that. (laughs) So you should listen to your guest, Jeremy. How dare you sucker punch us all? <laughs> so is is the right? So the filibuster has ancient roots. There's no doubt about it. And the filibuster has has stopped lots of good legislation over time, but it's also stopped lots of really bad legislation over time. So it serves a purpose. Um, I mean, it, its its purpose is now being debated much more seriously than I think it has in quite a while. I, right, I'm not sure how long the Senate will still have its filibuster, um, but it's in place now, and and it's having uh, ramifications on all sorts of debates taking place in the Senate today. And, and and Sean, before we talk about how this filibuster actually works, why is it there? It's not mentioned in the Constitution, of course. So so how did we get this this archaic institution? Yeah, so right, I'll give you a, a common person's understanding of how it came to exist. And and it, right, I'm a storyteller, Jeremy. This is the reason I think my students you're, pay you're attention. You're a great storyteller on occasion. And so the story is is that Aaron Burr, who was vice president, was looking at the Senate rule book. And he came across this thing called the motion to order the previous question. And he's like, we never use this thing. Like, we're just going to get rid of it, right? So this is back in the early 1800s. Um, And and so the Senate decides to delete this motion to order the previous question from its rule book. The House keeps its version, right? So the, the rules of the House and the rules of the Senate back when they first got started were more similar than they are today. And so Aaron Burr and the senators decide to get rid of this motion to order the previous question. And with that, it comes to an understanding that the only way that you can move legislation then is through this thing called the unanimous consent agreement. And of course, unanimous consent agreement is really important because of its first word, unanimous. So in order to get the Senate moving on anything, it requires all senators to agree to move on that thing. And so what that does is it empowers any individual senator to say, nope, I don't want to move on to that thing. And as soon as they object, then they have control of the floor. And then that sends us down a procedural set of steps whereby the rest of the Senate, if there's sufficient numbers, can tell that senator that they lose control of the floor and they go into a a different set of procedures whereby they can actually start debating something and and presumably at the end of legislative process even pass something. Um, But its origins, right, the, the reason we have a filibuster goes back to those early decisions made by Aaron Burr a long time ago. So like like Lynn manuels uh, play, I mean, Aaron Burr is the villain in a sense here, right? Well, if, if you think the filibuster is a bad thing, he's the villain. Um, <laughs> or is this the reason that the Senate becomes known as the greatest deliberative body in the, in the world? 
I mean, I think that, right, it, it depends on which side of the fence, of the filibuster fence you're on as to whether or not he's the villain or the hero. Right, right. Uh, it's it's extraordinary, though, Sean, isn't it, that that as vice president, uh, he had he had that much enduring power on the on the way the Senate operates. Oh, right. And, and, and this is a, actually a really good lesson for the Senate, right? So this is a precedent that's set early. And the Senate really cares about precedent. And so a, a decision that they make kind of just because they never used this thing ends up having these huge ramifications that, that we continue to feel throughout the next 200 plus years of history. Right. It's, it's a really important lesson in path dependence, uh, how a decision made early has enduring effects, as you say. Uh, how does the filibuster work, Sean? Um, right. So the, it's hard, right? And, and, and you know this, Jeremy, but to, to educate the folks who, who might be listening to this, right? So the filibuster really in a congressional sense just means the delay of legislation. And so the different forms that a filibuster can take are, are various, right? So when Ron Johnson makes them read every word of the $1.9 trillion bill, relief bill, that Congress is now in the process of passing, that is a form of filibuster, right? Because that is delaying the legislative process. And so we could call that a filibuster. But it comes to have a more particular meaning when a, a senator presumably takes the floor and, and gives a speech. And so we normally say that that is filibustering. But we could really claim that, that Ron Johnson's, uh, again, based on the unanimous consent agreement, normally uh, a senator, the, the majority leader would ask unanimous consent to waive the reading of the bill. And if no senator objects, then the, the, way, the reading of the bill is waived. But Ron Johnson objects. And so according to the rules of the Senate, that bill has to be read in its entirety. Um, and so uh, a form of filibuster. You know, so so in, in other words, uh, what the filibuster is, is a delay tactic that any senator can use in theory as long as they wish to use it. That's right. Um, and because so much of the Senate is done through these unanimous consent agreements, um, there are lots of opportunities for a senator to object. And as soon as they object, they have the floor. So what we normally think of the filibuster is when a senator starts giving a speech. And, and, and the only way that a filibuster can be broken at that point is through this process called cloture. Um, and cloture is a petition. And if the petition gets signed by 60 senators, um, then uh, they can um, attempt to invoke cloture. And then there will be a vote on cloture. And then if cloture is invoked, then there is a, 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 a different procedure again uh, in what can happen post-cloture. Uh, usually it's limited to 100 hours of debate, um, and then they have to move the legislation after cloture is invoked. So there's been a lot of talk lately about how the filibuster has affected our democratic institutions, not just the Senate, but Congress as a whole. How has the filibuster in the past promoted majoritarian democracy, and how has it undermined that at the same time? Yeah, so and and it's it's interesting that you use the word majoritarian. So what the filibuster does, because it requires sixty votes, uh, there's a supermajority, um, and so what a supermajority means is that instead of it only taking fifty votes plus the vice president to pass something, it requires sixty votes in the Senate for lots of different uh, pieces of legislation. And so when you require those 10 extra votes, it means that you're empowering lots of people, usually of the minority party, to, uh, to sign off on a piece of legislation, which, which gives them huge control over what the final words of that legislation look like or whether or not the final words can ever be agreed to. And so what it means is that it requires more than just a simple majority as the House of Representatives is just a, it's a majoritarian institution. If you have a, the, the number of yes votes are greater than the number of no votes, then the legislation's passed. 
but the Senate requires those 10 extra votes. And, and it's even more than that in some instances. It's 60 votes, right? It's not three-fifths of the Senate, right? So it's a 60-vote uh, threshold. So if they're Senate, if because of vacancies or deaths or senators not being in town, it's not enough that the three-fifths of the Senate agree, but it's that 60 votes, right? So it's it's literally 60 votes. And Sean, as a as a scholar of Congress who studied this, I think, closer than, than pretty much anyone else, when have been the moments when the filibuster has actually built consensus? That's the argument it seems to me you're making, that at certain moments it forces a party with 52 to actually reach out and find those on the other side, at least eight of them, to go along with things. And, and one could see, in theory, the value in that. So what moments uh, do you see as the moments when this is, has been a source of consensus building? Yeah, I mean, so I think that we could even um, just go back at a time and into a time that most of us remember, um, some of us more vividly than others, um, when <laughs> the Affordable Care Act was passed. Because it required uh, 60 votes, and in the Senate uh, at that time had 60 Democrats. Um, and so what it meant was that every single Democrat had to be in favor of it which meant that those moderate Democrats from Nebraska and Louisiana had a lot of power in shaping the legislation in order to pick up those last few votes. Now, it, in, in some ways, that piece of legislation was improved, particularly for the states of Louisiana and Nebraska. But in other senses, we could say that it required a broader consensus from the Senate as a whole, where if it only required 50 votes or 50 plus the vice president, we could have imagined that there might have been a more lively debate about the public option. But because it required those 60 votes, uh, that was a non-starter for enough of those Democrats that that it didn't happen. And if we go back in time, right, we can go back to the, the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. If we're only talking about the number of yeses being more than the number of noes, then you don't have to have particularly broad conversations among senators to figure out what wording actually works for enough of them to pass the thing. But because of the supermajoritarian requirement in the Senate, it just requires a broader conversation. And, and this, ram this has ramifications absolutely on the Senate. But it also has ramifications on the House, because that legislation also has to be passed by the House. And if in the process they're moderating that legislation, then it means that perhaps it's not passing 218 votes to 217, but maybe it's passing 260 votes uh, to 170. And so legislation that, that passes with, with broader margins usually is more sustainable. It's usually broader. It's, it's usually... Uh, has more buy-in from from some of the people who ultimately might object to it, um, and and so we think of it as being longer lasting. It's a great point, and it, you can see that certainly with uh, the civil rights legislation that that you mentioned, going back to the Fifty Seven Act uh, that Lyndon Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader, muscles his way through, and then of course the Sixty Four Civil Rights Act and the Sixty Five Voting Rights Act. What's striking about those examples, Sean, which are terrific examples, is is you're right, the legislation gains more permanence from having to go through the, the filibuster threshold. Uh, but it also, historians, I think, would argue, took much longer to get that legislation. And Jim Crow, and of course, before that slavery, lasts a lot longer than they might have otherwise because of the filibuster. So you can see both sides. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Right. So in part of the, the arguments that, that we're hearing today is that the filibuster should, should ultimately be uh, revoked from the rules of the Senate for 
perhaps m- most importantly, because of its, its racist past, right? So we don't get legislation on civil rights until the late 1950s and 1960s, in part because of the filibuster and, and the power of the supermajoritarian requirement in the Senate, that there was no way that you could get sufficient number of, of senators uh, to pass something, even though there might have been 51 votes much earlier. How does an effective majority leader do this? I mean, what do we learn from someone like um, Lyndon Johnson? We certainly learn that the majority leader, we learned this from Mitch McConnell too, is incredibly powerful in the Senate. Uh, but but it just seems today when the majority leader's main role is whipping his his or her own party, how, how have they in the past been able to get through this threshold? What have they done? Right. Uh, so it, it means that they're talking to their members, but because it's rare that we have a party having 60 votes just on its side of the aisle, it also requires them to have conversations across the aisle. And so what it means is that there has to be a far more open dialogue between the majority leader and the minority leader than we might otherwise think. And so good majority leaders are keeping their caucus together, which minimizes the number of votes they're going to have to get from the other side. But they're also uh, making sure that that dialogue happens. What we see happening, though, interestingly, especially over the last oh, 10 or even 15 years, is that there is a, another set of senators um, that feel particularly empowered because of the supermajoritarian requirement, and, and they come to be known as gangs, where they form a group, a bipartisan group. And usually the number of people in the group is explicitly tied to the number of votes that it will take to invoke cloture, so that, that, that 60 vote threshold. So if the Democrats have, let's just say 55 votes, then the gang will be a gang of 10 because they know that they need five Republicans. And so they usually form it in, in a bipartisan way. So five Republicans, five Democrats. But if the Democrats only have 53 uh, votes, then it would require a gang of 14 because you need seven Republicans and then the seven Democrats that they're negotiating with ultimately to try and, and, and pass legislation. And so what the filibuster does is it means that the conversations have to happen across the aisle in a way that certainly since you've seen since since January 6th in the House of Representatives, there's almost no conversations happening across the aisle, even though right, Nancy Pelosi's threshold isn't that much bigger than than Chuck Schumer's threshold in the Senate, but but she's able to to just with her votes alone uh, pass legislation where it, it doesn't require her to talk across the aisle in the same way that it does Chuck Schumer. So so I guess Sean, this is what puzzles me because it, it seems that over time, in most periods, these gangs that are formed, as you say, to uh, control getting through cloture, getting the 60 votes that are necessary, they've generally had a moderating influence on legislation because they usually are a mix of Democrats and Republicans close to the middle. Uh, Someone like a Senator Joe Manchin today from West Virginia, who's probably closer to the middle uh, than many other Democrats would be in the Senate, uh, or Susan Collins, I guess, on the Republican side from Maine. And they've had an enormous amount of influence on legislation over time, but it seems in the last last decade that hasn't happened. And and it seems as if um, the filibuster is being invoked more often than not just to stop any deliberation, to stop deliberation, for example, on gun control, to stop deliberation on voting rights. Is that a newer phenomenon? And if so, why? So it is a newer phenomenon. And, and so what, what's happening is that the, the parties are sorting at the same time that they're becoming more polarized, which means that there are far fewer Democrats representing Trump voting states 
and far fewer Republicans representing uh, Biden voting states, which means that the senators are less cross-pressured, which means that forming cross-party coalitions has become exceedingly more difficult. So we used it, right? If we go back to the, right, even uh, Richard Nixon's impeachment, the average uh, percentage that the Democratic candidate for president, so in this case, uh, uh, McGovern, would have gotten among states represented by Democrats was exactly the same as states represented by Republicans, right? So you had lots of Republicans who are representing Democratic-leaning states. You had lots of Democrats who are representing Republican-leaning states. And so those types of conversations happen much more easily when the constituencies maybe are, are, at a, are, are across, uh, when the senators feel cross-pressured from their constituencies and their parties. But what we know is over time, there are so few Right. So the, the two that you've already mentioned are, are two of the, the most obvious examples. And the next closest ones are really tough to come to. Right? You know, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, where where the Democrat wins by right a, a, a fraction of a percentage point. And so we don't think of them as being nearly as cross pressured as Susan Collins representing Maine or, or Joe Manchin representing West Virginia. And at the same time, the margins in the Senate have decreased. So in order to get 10 Republicans to go along with something that, that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and the Democrats want, you have to get to a pretty conservative Republican representing a pretty Republican voting state. And so that's just really hard. And so, right, those conversations become much more difficult. So to move things like gun control or voting rights, it's just that much more difficult because of the, the particular political situations of the senators. And in what role then does the filibuster play in such a close Senate, almost 50-50? How, how does the uh, filibuster's role change when we get increasingly very close margins in the Senate every Congress? Yeah. So what it means is that you're not going to get major pieces of legislation um, that can they can pass um, outside of, uh, of 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 budget stuff, right? So what we're seeing play out right now with the 1.9 uh, relief bill is that because it's related to budget, there's a different process involving budget reconciliation, which means that it only requires 50 votes. But things that don't require uh, money spending, like like voting rights or gun control, um, it means that 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 legislation is going to be so difficult to pass that many of us just can't even imagine, right? So perhaps there's like at the margins changes, but you're never going to get a big thrust of, of new gun control or protection of voting rights, the, the re-emboldening of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 after the Supreme Court opinion. You're not going to get huge immigration reform. The Senate is a very uh, stability-inducing place, right? So it also means we're not going to get big changes uh, from Congress to Congress, right? So right now the Democrats have a majority by Kamala Harris's vote. And if in, in four years, the Republicans have the same majority, we're not going to get big flips in legislation uh, because of the supermajoritarian requirement. So over time, Sean, I think uh, as a consequence of uh, a closely split Senate for, for quite a while and the difficulty of getting major legislation through, there has been uh, a chipping away, right, of the of the filibuster. Uh, the bu budget reconciliation itself, I think, is one example of that. Certainly, uh, as I recall, uh, the Democratic Party under President uh, Obama uh, eliminated the filibuster for judicial appointments short of the Supreme Court. And then, of course, the Republican Party under Donald Trump eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, which is how Trump was able to nominate and, and appoint three different members of the court. Uh, do you foresee a continued chipping away of the filibuster? Do you foresee an elimination of it? 
or just leaving it as it is? So, Jeremy, I think the filibuster's days are limited, right? So, again, the filibuster in the in the strictest sense. Of course, delaying legislation is always going to happen, right? But but the, this process that we've been talking about, especially most recently, its days are limited. Right now, I think that the filibuster is still on the books because of a couple of senators. So Kristen Sinema and, and Joe Manchin said that they like the filibuster. In any type of process to get rid of the filibuster would require a majority vote. Um, and so the Democrats don't have it right now. So if the Republicans uh, take control of the Senate after the 2022 election and they get it by a couple of votes, I think that it continues to exist only because they don't have unified government. But I think as soon as a party has unified government, that is control of both the House and the Senate and the White House, and they have a sufficiently large uh, margin in the Senate, the filibuster will be dead, right? So if, if the Democrats, let's just say, win control of, uh, keep control of the, of, uh, the White House, and, and let's say they pick up seats in the 2022 election so that they have 53 or 54 votes in the Senate, and still a majority in the House, I think the filibuster would be dead. Or if in the 2024 election, Republicans capture all three, and they have 53 or 54 votes, and, and they don't need Susan Collins and, and maybe one other uh, Republican senator, then I think the filibuster is dead. So I think its days are, are numbered. And as soon as a party has unified control, um, and they have sufficient majority in the Senate, then, then the filibuster will... Uh, be reformed uh, in the Senate. Or, or, or Sean, and this would be a, a, a road toward the, the end you're describing, is it is it likely that we will see more significant chipping away of it just in the coming months, for example, with, with Democrats wanting to be able to pass voting rights legislation? Yeah, and it, what's interesting to me is I think as we've seen um, the state legislatures invoke some pretty awful <laughs> new rules with respect to voting. I think the more ugly that process takes place in state legislatures, I could imagine Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema coming around, but I can't imagine the carve-outs for things like right voting rights. And then uh, I can't imagine they would then carve out um, something to do with gun control or right. Like I just can't imagine these carve-outs, but I could imagine them implementing as a particular process and maybe with a wink and a nod and, and some type of budget ram ramifications, uh, them trying to include uh, voting rights within the budget reconciliation rules that currently exist, right? So maybe it has to do with the federal government giving states money to do X, Y, or Z so that voting rights certainly now would, would then have financial ramifications such that it could be read under uh, budget reconciliation. And I guess this is my last question, Sean. Uh, do do you see this or foresee the Senate moving to what what Joe Manchin himself has mentioned, which is the possibility of at least making those who want to invoke the filibuster make them work harder, make them actually stand up and speak? Right now, oftentimes, right, those who are willing to filibuster simply threaten to do it, and the Senate moves on. But do you foresee them at least raising the pain threshold for filibusterers, as Manchin has suggested? So I can imagine them doing it in very limited ways. The problem with that, and you've already alluded to this, the power of the majority leader to set the agenda. So if the Senate is meeting, then Chuck Schumer wants to use the meeting time of the Senate in a way to advance the Democratic agenda. If he calls up bills that will merely be filibustered, and they end up wasting 24, 48 hours a week because of a filibuster, then that means he's not able to move all the other things that Chuck Schumer wants to move, many of which don't require a 60-vote threshold, right? Judicial appointments, filling out the rest of President Biden's cabinet. So the plenary time on the Senate trades off 
with the filibuster time. And so for every minute that they're fil- the, the Chuck Schumer is allowing a filibuster, right, raising the pain threshold, forcing Republican senators to talk endlessly on the floor of the Senate means that he's not able to do all the other things that the Democrats uh, want to do in the Senate. And so, right, it's, 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 it's a good talking point, but I just can't see it playing out, except in perhaps very limited cases. It's a, it's a great insight, Sean, that, that there is a trade-off in terms of time uh, for, for the Senate, and the majority has limited time, very limited time to get things done, especially when you look at the electoral clock with a 2022 election coming up. Uh, Zachary, uh, as we close here, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Do, does a younger generation like yours, first of all, the, the do you pay attention to this? Is this something that can uh, motivate people? I mean, one, one thing Sean is saying is that the filibuster's days are, are numbered. That certainly means that uh, this is an issue uh, people should pay attention to. Do you think that's that's the case? I do think that's the case. I think a lot of people in my generation are very dissatisfied with the slow pace of everything in the United States Congress. And the, especially those who, who feel aligned with the Democratic Party in particular, I think are very frustrated that many of the reforms that young people have pushed the hardest for are being stalled because of these uh, these legislative rules. And so I think that you will see a, a lot more attention to these issues from young people and, and young voters who are quickly becoming a very important voting block uh, in our elections. Great point. Is is that accurate, Sean, do you think? Uh, so it is accurate. Um, but I would warn uh, both Zachary and, and, and folks of his generation and people that have his politics that uh, while it may be beneficial to your side today, uh, in four years, when the Republicans have unified control, you could imagine them getting rid of lots of things that, that the Democrats would not want to put in place and, and perhaps even going back further, right? Not only stripping away some of the Biden administration's achievements, but even going back to the Affordable Care Act or, or other uh, other policies that, that have uh, lots of benefits to not only Democrats, but also a good number of Republicans. That's for sure. And, and there we have the reason the filibuster has survived as long as it has. Sean, uh, this was fantastic. Y- you offer uh, such detailed and insightful knowledge on Congress and related political matters. And you're, you're so good at explaining things and, and also making it fun and interesting. So thank you, Sean, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on, Jeremy. It's a pleasure talking to you and Zachary today. And Zachary, thank you for your poem as always. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.